0: Well, it is a joy to be with you here again uh, this morning. I had uh, one other uh, announcement. I wanted to talk briefly about uh, our Sunday morning equipping hour, which meets uh, from 9 uh, to 10 a.m. Uh, on Sunday mornings. And I just wanted to encourage all of you uh, to come to that equipping hour. It's a great time uh, of studying. We do topical studies uh, during that time. And I know uh, in... Uh, in the past, we have been announcing certain classes that we're going to uh, be starting in February and in March. And I want to talk briefly about uh, the fact that we are going to be combining some of those classes. As Bruce and I were, were meeting and talking uh, last week, we realized that uh, the Fundamentals of the Faith class, which uh, Vincent was going to be teaching starting in March, uh, was going to be very, very similar to the theology that we were going to be teaching uh, in the in the class that Bruce was uh, going to be covering, uh, and so we have decided to combine those classes, so we will have a uh, practical theology uh, class uh, for uh, anybody and everybody who wants to come and just learn the basics of the theology of the Christian faith, and that's going to begin on Sunday, February uh, 9th, uh, after uh, Bruce finishes up his uh, class on uh, marriage, which has been really, really Really good. So, but would really encourage all of you to to try and make that Sunday morning equipping hour a priority. It's a great way to continue to grow in your faith uh, and to be able to read and study uh, and learn more about uh, who God is, who we are, and all that Christ has done for us. That seems like a good uh, topic to study. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be continuing our study in uh, the Gospel of John uh, together this morning. So I would invite you, uh, actually, we're going to be in John, but I I would invite you to open to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 14, and we'll we'll read from there. Uh, But as you're turning there, uh, over the last few decades, there uh, has been, uh, I guess kids Church. all right uh those who are kindergarten through 3rd grade can be uh dismissed uh to their class they really wanted to hear this sermon and you took that away from them uh and so uh they I'll talk to them about forgiving you uh in the future and uh but no they they are uh they are dismissed uh at this point uh, in time a little late but uh still dismissed but Uh, So over the last few decades, there has been uh, a crisis felt uh, in the American church, and it has been often uh, written about uh, in uh, Christian magazines and and such, and it is a a crisis that is near and dear to the heart of every Christian parent. And uh, this crisis is, is quantified in numerous studies that show uh, a large percentage of teenagers uh, who have grown up in the church that when they turn 18, they are departing uh, from the Christian faith, that they are no longer attending church and they are uh, renouncing Christ. Now, some of them come come back around later on in life, uh, but many of them don't. Uh, and so this uh, is being felt uh, among uh, the church today uh, and as someone who's, who's worked with youth students for the, the better part of the last decade, uh, I've seen this firsthand. Uh, I've seen a lot of students who uh, have been following the Lord uh, all through high school and then uh, they get to college, they, they move out and they begin to go their own way. Uh, and there are numerous suggestions as to why this is happening, and, and some point to the, just the dramatic change in our culture over the last 40 years, kind of moving away from a Judeo-Christian worldview as a society, uh, to very postmodern, uh, secular culture. Other people point to the, the public school system and colleges and universities that are, uh, now pretty, openly hostile to Christians, to Christianity, to anybody who would say, I'm following Jesus. There is a, uh, a an animosity there that was not present uh, years ago. And still others point to the lack of discipleship in most, uh, most youth ministries. Uh, they're realizing that, that pizza and games and entertainment, they are, it's, it's very successful in getting students to come on a Wednesday night, uh, or on a Sunday morning, but they're realizing that, that what you win them with is what you win them to. Uh, so when, when students are going to youth ministry for years and years and it's just pizza fun and, and entertainment, what do they expect once they're done with youth ministry? And what do they have an appetite for? Those same exact things. And when, when they go to big church, as youth ministries across the land, uh, lovingly and affectionately call, this is what we're doing right now, uh, gathering together as a whole. Uh, when they find out that big church isn't about all of those things, they're like, well, this, this doesn't really appeal to me. And many, many people are are realizing the flaw in that philosophy of ministry. And while I think all of these factors have played a part, I think the last one by far is most significant because I I firmly believe that faithfully discipling our youth students will prepare them to walk onto a college campus and be ready to answer questions about their faith. I think faithfully discipling our youth students will prepare them to live in a world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. But how are we as a, as a whole supposed to understand not just the youth who are departing from the church, but uh, if you have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you have undoubtedly seen and experienced uh, other people, uh, other Christians, uh, who have been walking with Jesus for a time, and then suddenly they, they don't want to follow Jesus anymore. Something happens in their life, uh, something changes and they're saying this is no longer for me. But we begin to understand this, uh, first and foremost by acknowledging that this is not a modern day crisis. Uh, this has been going on in the church, uh, since Acts chapter 2, since the very beginning. Uh, there have always been disciples of Jesus who follow for a time, uh, and then they decide uh, other things are more important. That They're, they're no longer going to walk with Jesus. Now, I think you're there in Matthew chapter 14, uh, and I'm going to read that passage. But if you turn back just a, a page or two over to Matthew chapter 13, uh, a very important passage where Jesus is telling what the church age would be like, the the parables of the kingdom. And he he tells this uh, parable of the soils uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verses uh, 10 through 17. And then he explains the parable in verses 18 to 23. And if, if you look with me at that passage, Jesus explaining the parable, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes... And snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So Jesus establishes this this paradigm, this pattern that there will be some who follow Jesus for a time and then fall away and The New Testament gives us numerous examples of this uh, first and foremost, among the twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot, he, he walked with Jesus, saw everything that he did was with him throughout his entire earthly ministry, and what did Judas end up doing falling away, betraying Jesus. Other examples include Simon the magician who in Acts chapter 8 was initially baptized by uh, the apostles. And then he shows his unbelief uh, that when uh, Peter comes and, and lays hands uh, on the Samaritans and uh, the the Spirit comes and uh, indwells the Samaritans and they speak in tongues and uh, different things. And Simon says, hey, I'll give you money if you can give me that power. And Peter says, you, you can't purchase the Holy Spirit like that. Repent and and Simon just says, "Will you pray for me?" and that 'll be enough. He does not repent. Other examples include uh, Demas, uh, and uh, Paul writes uh, about demas in second Timothy chapter four, verse ten. He says, "For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to thessalonica and then that 's why in first Timothy uh, chapter one." Paul, writing to this young pastor, gives him a charge, uh, and he says, "...this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, being unwilling to fight the good fight, as we're familiar with, uh, Paul points to two other examples of men who served with Paul, but then eventually left." It says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And this falling away has been a, a common experience throughout the 2,000 years of the church, and it was also a common experience in the Old Testament among the Israelites. Now, Isaiah 59, verses 12 and 13 says this, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. This is Israel confessing their sins to the Lord. And listen to what they confess as their sins. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart-lying words. This is a, a common experience throughout all those who will follow God, that there will be some who depart and go their own way. And seeing this take place with someone that you know, that someone that you've walked along with through life, is very, very painful. Your heart always breaks for them. And indeed, this breaks God's heart as well, to see anyone turn away from Him. And this is seen clearly uh, in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 42. uh, Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, just before He's going to enter into Jerusalem and eventually be crucified. But He comes over uh, and, and looks at Jerusalem, and He says this. When He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping at the hard-heartedness of the city of Jerusalem because He's coming as its Savior. But what are they going to do? They're going to reject Him. They're going to turn away from their King who would save them and rescue them. And again, the longer we follow Jesus, the more we will see this take place. So people falling away, but it never gets any easier. And what's amazing is that that John chapter six as a whole addresses this concept. Okay. John chapter six is going to be building uh, to John uh, or verse 66, which says that many of the disciples of Jesus uh, departed and left him at that time because he was saying things that were hard to To swallow. They were saying he was beginning to teach things that were, that were difficult for them to submit to. And so they began to leave him and depart from him. And this chapter is going to be building towards that. And while later on in the chapter we'll see the characterization of those who, who fall away from Jesus, this morning's uh, section that we're going to look at is John, uh, chapter 6 verses 16 to 21. And it's going to be presented as a contrast. That's going to show us the proper response to Jesus. The crowds are pursuing Jesus for the wrong reasons, and they're going to be the ones that that fade away. But in this passage, we're going to see how the disciples respond to Jesus. And that's going to be held up as an example for us uh, to behold and to follow. And last week, uh, we looked at the first 15 verses of the chapter, which which tell us about a miracle that's commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, But as we we studied that last week, the the numbering of the 5,000 was really just counting the men who were there, uh, and that number doesn't include the women and children, Uh, and so it was more likely that Jesus fed almost 20,000 people that day. And that miracle is going to set the stage for the remainder of the chapter. And and when the crowds see this miracle performed by Jesus, they immediately conclude that Jesus must be the prophet spoken of by Moses. Say, hey, this must be the one because he's doing what Moses did. And just as Moses was used by God to, to feed the nation of Israel in the wilderness, now Jesus is bringing bread from heaven down to the people. And the people didn't just conclude that Jesus is the prophet, but they also included or concluded that he should also be king. Say, so, hey, if if Moses delivered us from the Egyptians and brought us out of slavery, then maybe Jesus is going to deliver us from the Romans and bring us out from under uh, their power and influence. And so the people intended to seize Jesus and force him to become king right at that point in time. And Matthew, Mark, and John all record what happens next. And again, while I'll be preaching from... Uh, John chapter 6. I wanted to read a parallel passage that gives us a few more details. And it's found in in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, right after the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew records, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. As we look at this miracle that Jesus performs just before uh, his twelve disciples, uh, we are going to see how they respond to to Jesus, and their response is one of faith. And worship, and it will be later contrasted with the superficial faith of the crowds uh, who were only hungry for the blessing that Jesus provides uh, and who will meet uh, Jesus and the disciples at Capernaum. In John 6, 26, we see see that the crowds who were seeking Jesus in Capernaum wanted to find him only because they had eaten the bread uh, and eaten the fish. So, hey, if Jesus is going to be my meal ticket, I better follow him around all of these places. And Jesus rebukes them. For that they wanted to follow him for the wrong reasons but they did not want to worship him and this passage is going to show us jesus as god the, the creator who is able to to command nature but it doesn't just show us who jesus is it also shows us how we are called to respond to him uh, and how we respond to him reveals what is taking place in our hearts reveals our motivations. And the pursuit of Jesus by the masses in the first century for the wrong reasons could also be said about many who follow Jesus today. We follow Jesus for our own desires, but not to truly worship Him. And if there are right and wrong, correct and incorrect reasons for following Jesus, how do I know if I'm following Him for the right reasons? How can I examine my own heart to see if my pursuit of Him is pleasing to Him? If it's selfish and sinful or selfless and worshipful? Well, what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 6, as we study this miraculous account, is that there are two attitudes that distinguish those who are following Jesus for the right reasons. And the first attitude is going to be found in verses 16 through 18 in John chapter 6. And this attitude is faith and obedience in the absence of Jesus. Faith and obedience in the absence of Jesus. And if you're there with me in John 6, read verses 16 through 18. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And now, it was now dark, and Jesus had, yet come, had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So John sets the stage of uh, evening had come and darkness was upon them. Uh, and the disciples set out from the, the eastern shore of Galilee where Jesus had fed the 5,000. And they're going to kind of row probably about five miles over to a town on the northeastern shore uh, of this lake, uh, Capernaum. Uh, but there was one tiny problem, or I guess more accurately, an enormous problem, uh, and that is the wind coming across uh, the lake at this time of day, in the late afternoon and into the evening uh, and the night. And John records that the sea was stirred up by a very strong wind. Matthew says that the boat was a, a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, And you might be be thinking well how how does the wind how how does such a storm created on a lake this small out in the middle of the desert right? Well, again, as I kind of mentioned last week, the geography of the lake, it's 650 feet below sea level, uh, and it's completely surrounded by mountains. Uh, But the the rivers and the streams that feed into this lake kind of create uh, these these valleys and canyons, and the the cool air from the Mediterranean Sea comes uh, flowing in on the the western side uh, of the lake, and the hot air off of the desert uh, comes swooping in down the Hills uh, and onto the lake, and that the cold air and the warm air collide right over the lake, uh, and it creates these uh, amazing storms uh, that that stir up the water at a, at amazing, uh, an amazing pace and verse 19 tells us that the disciples had only gone about three or four miles and that's kind of a, an estimation because the greek uses a, a different form of measurement called the stadia but if i said 25 or 30 stadia you'd say what how far is that uh and so uh the esv converts that into a measurement that we are familiar with uh and Matthew says that the boat was a long way from land. Now, they probably would have initially wanted to stay close to the shore, but I think the, the wind drove them out to the middle of the lake. Uh, and they had been. At, uh, Mark says that they had been making headway painfully. And, and again, this is what is remarkable because uh, Jesus said, Hey, go, go over to the other side. I'll meet you in Capernaum. All right. Uh, and this was an extremely difficult thing for them to accomplish. Uh, to make this decision to row across the lake at night in this type of weather. And they were probably rowing for at least six hours. And I come to that conclusion because John says that it was evening when they set out, which is uh, between 6 and 9 p.m. Uh, and then Matthew's Gospel says that Jesus came to them walking on the water in the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So all through the night, they, they were rowing against the wind. They're probably mentally and physically exhausted. And even though they were seven uh, experienced fishermen, they're among the disciples. Okay, Seven men who were used to this kind of storm. They were still probably very terrified. right? Uh, but they were still determined to follow and obey what Jesus had instructed them to do. Now, we've all been in situations where there's an authority over us, whether that's a boss, a teacher, a parent, uh, who might step away for a time, uh, and when they're gone, what are we tempted to do? Uh, To slack off just a little bit, right? Uh, To maybe not do what they told us to do, but kind of do our own thing. Uh, And yet the disciples still follow Jesus. And uh, as the saying goes, when the cat's away, what do the mice do? They play. And that's what they are tempted uh, to do. And when the authority over us is away, we are prone also not just to, to slack off, but we're prone to to complain and to grumble about uh, them or about the work that has been placed over us. And if you could just put yourself on this boat that night, I imagine myself in that situation and I can see myself grumbling and complaining, right? Jesus, why do we have to go all the way to Capernaum tonight? Can't we just wait till the morning? Why do I, why are you making us row all this way? And then where are you? Right? You told us to go do this, and then you disappeared. So here we are rowing, endangering our lives. But the disciples keep on. They still obey His commands. Their faith leads them to obedience. And this attitude distinguishes them from the other so-called disciples of Jesus later on. Now, when the teaching of, of Jesus becomes difficult and costly to obey... The, the The masses are saying, Well, that's the end of my time following Jesus, but the disciples say no i'm gonna I'm gonna press on, and especially in this situation when they are rowing against the wind, it would have been very easy for them just to say hey let's just let's give up for now and just allow the wind to push us back where we came from, and then we can start again when the wind isn't blowing. when the circumstances are easier, then we can obey Jesus." But we have to to look at this and see their faith and their obedience, even when Jesus is not present with them, even when he is absent from them, they are willing to obey, they are willing to walk in faith, trusting uh, and obeying all that He has commanded them to do. So it raises some questions for us: How do we respond when the commands of Jesus are difficult to follow, when they are costly for us, when we have to, to work to obey Even more than that, do we have a desire to obey Him even when it's difficult and costly within our own hearts? Are we we prone to giving up? Saying, well, if it's convenient, I'll follow Jesus, but if not, I'll go my own way. And do we act as if Jesus is present in some situations but not others, right? Hey, I'll obey Jesus here and now when others are watching or when I'm aware of Him, but... In other circumstances, we compartmentalize our life and say, well, I'll go my own way under these circumstances. But we need to keep in mind that in the same way that Jesus was aware of all of the efforts of His disciples that night on the water, that He is also aware of all of our efforts, all of our work, all of our weariness, He sees and He knows. And He calls us to believe and obey Him, even when we cannot see Him, even when it feels as if he is absent for a time. And true faith will obey the commands of Christ even in the greatest storm. And true faith desires to obey God because it's motivated by love. Later on in John's Gospel, on the, uh, the, the Last Supper, Jesus' final words to his disciples, John fourteen twenty one. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus restores Peter, because Peter denied Jesus three times on the night of his uh, betrayal and arrest. And so Jesus is going to restore Peter, and three times he asks Peter, Do you love me? And each time Peter says, Yes. And, And so we have this interchange. Jesus says, Do you love me? Peter says, Yes. And then what does Jesus do? He says, Okay, if you love me, do this and there's a command that follows if you truly love Jesus you will obey this Peter and three times Jesus says to Peter shepherd my sheep and the point is that if Peter really loves Jesus he will obey him and that again that is what distinguishes true disciples faith and obedience motivated by love even when Jesus is not here that's the first attitude of a true disciple and And the twelve demonstrated their faith in obedience when Jesus was absent from them. But that's always the case for you and I, because Jesus has never been here physically on the earth with us. So all of our obedience is in His absence. But then there's also a a second attitude that marks a true disciple. This attitude is seen then in verses 19 through 21. This attitude is that comfort and worship in the presence of Jesus. Comfort and worship in the presence of Jesus. Look with me at those verses 19 through 21. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And so after hours of rowing through the night uh, and not getting very far, the disciples, again, mentally and physically exhausted, Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. And Matthew and Mark record that initially they think he's a ghost. And so they become even more afraid. And what's interesting, there there are always skeptics who want to deny the miracles of Jesus. And it's interesting to to look at their arguments here because some of them say, well, Jesus didn't really walk on the water. He was just walking on the beach by the sea, not on the sea. And I say, well, there's some, some issues with that because Matthew and Mark both say that the boat isn't by the shore. The boat is in the middle of the lake. Okay? Uh, and then additionally, uh, we have to explain and understand the fear and the terror of the disciples. Right? It is not scary to see someone walking on the beach. That's normal. Okay? What is scary is in the middle of a storm, you see someone walking on water. That's a different situation. That's a bit more unusual and not an everyday experience. Jesus decided to suspend the law of gravity for a time so that He might come to His disciples in their time of need. Again, last week we talked about the compassion of Jesus, and we see it again on display here. And you wonder how much longer can they row, right? At least six hours of rowing, constant wind, probably a lot of water in the boat, maybe fewer people rowing and more people just bailing water out. And Jesus comes to them at that time, and he wasn't struggling to make it through the rough seas. He's just walking effortlessly on the surface of the water. And Jesus knew that his disciples were frightened by the sight of him, so so he speaks to them in verse 20. He says, It is I, do not be afraid. Now that little phrase, it is I, could have a significant theological implication here. Uh, Back in Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 14, uh, God is speaking to Moses through the the burning bush. Uh, And uh, Moses is saying, well, well, give me a name. What's your name, God, so that I might give it to the Israelites when they ask? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in Hebrew, the name of God, I am, uh, is represented by four letters. Uh, and we would pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, but in, in the Greek, that word, that divine name is expressed as uh, two words, as ego me. Ego is I and "ami" is the verb to be. That's what Jesus says here. He says ego me. I am. It is I. Uh, and that little statement is going to be repeated several times throughout the remainder of this gospel as Jesus is going to make several I am statements, beginning in John chapter six, verse thirty five, when he says, I am the bread of life. Right? These series of, of statements, and each of them is going to be a claim to deity, but this, this could be understood in that way here, but it's more than likely it's just Jesus saying, hey, it's me, you don't need to be afraid. It, the same phrase is used by the man born blind in John chapter 9, just saying, hey, it's, it's me, I am the man. Uh, and I don't think he was making any claims, uh, to divinity, but Matthew records that, that after Jesus identified himself, Peter decided that he wanted to go out, to Jesus on the water, and I'm not sure why he did that. Okay, again, me, I'm a little bit more conservative in nature. Uh, that seems a little bit risky, but Peter is a unique guy. He says, "All right, uh, Jesus, if this is you, have me come out there." Uh, and uh, somebody brought up a good point, uh, Peter. What if it had been a ghost? Uh, you know, that would have been the end of Peter. Let me just step off the safe boat and into the these stormy seas. And again, if it was me, I probably would have said, Jesus, if it's you, please come quickly and get in the boat and calm the storm. Uh, because that's what Jesus did uh, a little bit earlier in his ministry on this very same uh, sea when he was uh, in a boat with his disciples and a storm came upon them. And Jesus is asleep at the bottom of the boat. Uh, and the disciples come and, and wake him up and say, Hey, you you got to do something. We're about to die. But but John places more of an emphasis here upon the disciples being comforted by Jesus and, and their desire to receive him into the boat. Verse 21 says, they were glad to take him into the boat. And the, the Greek is literally, they were wishing to receive him uh, into the boat. Uh, and, and that word for, for wishing, is, it's often used to, to indicate what you are feeling, what you are desiring in your heart. It speaks about what is going on internally and as soon as the disciples realized that Jesus was not a ghost, they wanted to be with him. So, okay, if you're not a ghost, then come be with us, Jesus. We want you here right now. And again, that is what, that's what should characterize a genuine relationship, right? Now, we, in our society, we're all about authenticity. That's the, the key buzzword right now. You've got to be authentic, right? And authentic relationships mean... And that you're going to be genuine. And that you truly want to, to know that person. And in genuine, authentic relationships, you have a desire to be with that person. Shallow relationships are motivated by what? By what you can do for me. Right? What's, what's in it for me? And that mentality permeates so many friendships, both inside and outside of the church. But it shouldn't be that way. And of course, that's never said aloud, right? What's in this relationship for me? and often the the foundation of friendships when it is that way they last for a time as long as there's a, a mutual beneficial relationship that friendship continues but then when 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 it's deemed by one or both parties of hey this isn't really worth it for me anymore they they drift apart or they end the friendship and that's desiring the benefits of friendship without without genuinely desiring the friend right and if somebody came up to you and said that, hey, I just want what you can do for me. I don't want to know you. I will not have no relationship with you. I just want what you can provide for me. Would you want to be friends with that person? No, you'd be like, get away from me right now. But that's what we see here in John 6. That's the response of the crowds. They, they want the benefits that Jesus can provide for them, the, the instant meals, the, the miraculous signs that provide them with entertainment, uh, the, the healing when they're sick. But the crowds don't want Jesus. Again, that's what distinguishes the twelve disciples from the crowds. See, the disciples don't just want the benefits of Jesus, they want Jesus himself. They don't just want to receive things from Him, they want to be with Him because of who He is. And so they bring Jesus into the boat, and then another miracle takes place. Matthew and Mark record that, that the wind stops immediately soon. So think of that, a raging wind, raging storm, raging seas, and then Jesus gets into the boat and it's instantaneously calm. And then another miracle takes place because what John says, not only does the sea calm and the wind die down, but then suddenly they are transported. I don't know how it happens, but it just it says they are immediately where they were intended to go, to Capernaum. Again, it's one of those things like, I want some more details. Like Did, what, did they become like a power speedboat uh, and just zoom across the lake? Or was it just like, you know beam me up, Scotty, and then they're suddenly over at the dock in Capernaum? But, but it happened. You have this series of miracles taking place here, and, uh, and I think also it would have been kind of anticlimactic for all of that to happen, and then you have to row to shore, right? Like Jesus comes walking to you, and they're like, okay, we've got to keep rowing. Uh, so Jesus is like, all right, let's, let's just go to where we are intending to be. And what's amazing is when they arrive in Capernaum, Matthew says that the disciples turn to Jesus in worship. And those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. And all of this might be an allusion to Psalm 107, uh, verses 28 to to 32. It says that, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And again, the, the response uh, the last two verses in the, in that psalm of "Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders." And again, Jesus performs this miracle, not for all of the the crowds to see. But for who? For his disciples. This is this is a private miracle that he shows to them to 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 again prove to them who he is. And they might have been a little bit discouraged, right? I think the twelve were probably among those who wanted Jesus to immediately be king. They were probably a little bit saddened by the fact that he wasn't going to do that at that point in time. And so Jesus says, "Okay, let me let me show this miracle to you and still affirm that I am." The Son of God, the Messiah, the prophet, and although this this account is really brief, right? you think of how small this paragraph is in in your Bible, but we see four miracles here, right We see Jesus walking on the water, we see uh, Peter walking out to Jesus on the water. we see the wind and sea are immediately calmed as soon as Jesus enters the boat, and then the boat is instantaneously transported from the middle of the lake to the dock at Capernaum. Four miracles, boom, boom, boom. I think the, the disciples were probably just sitting at Capernaum kind of in, uh, in, sh- in shock and overwhelmed at what just happened in just a few minutes, right? Like 15 minutes before, they're, they're battling uh, the, the, the raging waters and thinking that they're going to perish. And then suddenly they're at Capernaum with Jesus and they just saw him walking out to him to them on the water again all of this leads the disciples to worship Jesus again this is what distinguishes and identifies a true disciple they don't find comfort in what Jesus can provide for them they provide they find comfort in Jesus himself that that is who they want it's not what they want but who this is helpful for us to see and again, it should prompt some some self-examination in our own hearts. of Of where do we find comfort, right? What's our our default things that we that we turn to when we are in need of comfort? When we are wanting uh, peace and hope and encouragement, where do we turn? To who do we turn? To what do we turn? Right. I'm uh, in the process of doing this. Uh, Cleanse diet right now called Whole 30, and it's just a month of misery. Uh, but uh, what 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 the, the diet really uh, unveils uh, in a, in a marvelous way is how uh, I turn to certain foods in order to be comforted. Okay. Uh, that, that I, I have a routine that I don't even think about when I'm when i uh, when I'm bored or when I'm stressed or when I come home from work or certain things, I turn to certain foods. And you all have the exact same thing, and you're thinking about it right now. I can tell. Uh, some of you are like, why are you licking your chops right now? Uh, but uh, I know lunch is coming. But but we all have these things that we turn to for comfort, for encouragement, when, when we are uh, stressed or anxious. And again, what we need to see is who should we really turn to? It's Christ. He needs to be our comforter. He needs to be the one that we want. He is the one that we always need to turn to. So again, do we find ourselves seeking comfort in created things or do we find ourselves seeking comfort? From the Creator, from Jesus Himself. And then again, of do we worship Jesus because of what He can do for you or do we worship Him because of who He is? And when I say, do we worship Jesus because of what He can do for you. I'm not speaking of the, the blessings of salvation. We are called to praise and thank and worship Jesus for all that He has done for us. Everything that He accomplished on the cross, bearing our sin, bearing the wrath of God, and enduring the punishment that we deserve. We need to praise Him for that. But what I'm speaking about is there are other times where we just want blessings from Jesus. We want material provision from him, but we don't want him. You know, there's another uh, concept within the, the modern, uh, popular contemporary culture is uh, what's known as the prosperity gospel. Uh, that God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy, uh, and, and that's the good life, and that, that is not the case. Jesus wants us to want him more than we want happiness and health and wealth in this life. He's calling us to To turn to Him and behold Him. And that is, again, what we are going to see overall in this chapter, John chapter 6. Because the the crowds are going to be following Jesus and, and wanting things from Him, but they don't want Him. And we have to check and examine our own hearts so that we don't follow in their wayward steps we are to worship Jesus for who he is and all that he has done for us but not all that he will give to us again these are the these are the attitudes that distinguish genuine disciples from those who will only follow Jesus for a time and what we what we're going to see as we continue to study this chapter is that everybody who, who falls away, everybody who stops following Jesus, does so because they were following him for the wrong reasons. That, that's why. Uh, and as John MacArthur says, time and truth go hand in hand. Okay, all of our desires, all of the reasons that we have for following Jesus eventually come out. They are eventually revealed. We talked at the, at the beginning about, hey, what, how, what are we to make of all of these youth students uh, who grow up in the church, and then when they're finally given freedom, they, they go and abandon Jesus. Well, what does that reveal about their heart? Maybe that they were, they were here at the church more because they were with their parents than truly because they wanted to follow Christ. Right? Again, if all of those things come out, motives are eventually made clear. And we are called to, to believe and trust and obey in Jesus even when it seems like He is absent from us. And we are to, to find comfort in and we are called to worship Him in His presence. Finding comfort in who He is, not just what He can do for us. And trusting in Jesus brings us this forgiveness from God. And that is the uh, the, the, the most uh, blessed and, and glorious thing that we can thank and praise God for. Of all that we have in Christ, that when we when we look to Him in faith, we are cleansed and forgiven. Our sin no longer counted to our account, but now it is attributed to Christ, and His righteousness is given to us. And some of you are here this morning, and this concept of trusting in Christ may be new. Maybe used to just going your own way, depending upon yourself. But we are called to trust in Him completely. And if you're here, and this is, again, maybe the first or second or third time that you're hearing this, but you haven't yet trusted in Him, I would urge you to do that. I would urge you to look to Him in faith. That's what He calls all of us to as we as we 've looked to at uh, these first two passages uh, in John chapter six each of them each of them closed with G- people trying to take jesus okay, I want to point this out to you in in verse fifteen the the crowds are wanting to take Jesus and make him king okay, the, uh, they wanted to seize him and take him by force there 's a the Greek word uh, harpazo means to, to grab or seize suddenly, to gain control, to snatch or take someone away. And in other instances, that word is used uh, in the Gospels uh, to refer to, to robbery or the, the unlawful snatching away of something or, or someone. And that's what the crowds wanted to do. They wanted to seize Jesus for their own reasons. They said, Jesus, I want you to come with me and you're going to do what I want you to do. You're going to be king now, and you're going to be king in this way. But at the end of the passage that we looked at this morning, verse 21, the disciples want to take Jesus into the boat. And it's a, a different Greek word there, but it's a, the same idea, the same definition. Okay? To grab or seize someone suddenly, to gain control of them. But that word can also have the, the idea of to include in an experience to receive someone or something, I think we're intended to contrast those two and figure out where we where we stand, right? That, that big question of, do you want Jesus? Each of us have to answer that. But then there's a second question. If the answer is yes, why do you want him? Do you want him because you want to try and force him to do what you want him to do? Jesus, come be my genie. Or is it, Jesus, I want you. I want to be with you. I want you to be Lord. I want you to be Savior. I want you to govern and guide my life. We have to ask and we have to answer that question, each and every one of us. You can't answer for anybody else? but we have to examine our own hearts and be convinced that Jesus is worthy of our affection. He himself, apart from any other blessings that he gives us outside of salvation, that he himself is worthy of our affection and our devotion. I'll tell you about a man who who was convinced of that. A man named David Brainerd. At the age of 24 began his work uh, as a missionary to the Native Americans in New England back in the 1700s. And he lived among them uh, and he ministered to them, sharing the gospel with them and established churches in multiple villages there. And he ministered to them for three years before he had to leave the mission field because of his declining health. And he lived a short and difficult life because he was plagued by tuberculosis which at that point in time was known as consumption. And tuberculosis eventually took his life when he was only 29 years old. And when you have tuberculosis you know that you're not going to live to to a ripe old age. You know you have an abbreviated life. Your time on earth is going to be greatly shortened. But David Brainerd said well I'm going to serve the Lord while I am here. And Brainerd is, is well known because he kept a journal of his personal thoughts and uh, his missionary efforts and I would I- encourage you, uh, to get it and read it. Now there's times where it's a little, uh, dry and difficult to, to wade through, but it's amazing just to, to see his ministry and his heart. I mean, he was an emotional guy. He wrote everything that was taking place, uh, within him and he recorded it down and, And you can get the journal really, really easily. I read it on Kindle last year, but towards the end of his life, this is what he said. He said, Oh, the closest walk with God is the sweetest heaven that can be enjoyed on earth. The closest walk with God is the sweetest heaven that can be enjoyed on earth. And again, that is... That is the truth that we need to be convinced of. And and unless we are convinced of that, there, there will come a time in our life when we are greatly tempted to fall away. We must be convinced of Christ's greatness. Otherwise, we will wander. We will stray. And I pray that we would all be convinced of the worthiness of Christ even as David Brainerd was, and even as the twelve disciples were. And may we believe in and obey Jesus, and may we find comfort in His presence, and may we worship Him for who He is and for all that He has done on our behalf. Amen.